And welcome, everybody. We are live. Welcome to the 4.0 Solutions weekly live Q&A, or as we like to call it now, the 4.0 Solutions podcast. Podcast. <laughs> For Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. So what's up, Zach? Dude, the podcast is doing really good, by the way. A lot of people are downloading uh, that uh, that uh, last episode. Mm-hmm. Some interesting metrics. Um, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of integrators, um, who watch our content and who are definitely not, um, what I would say, true believers of, uh, our philosophies. Um, but it, it's even, you know, there are a lot of people who work at OEMs <clears throat> who watch our content. Rockwell is definitely one of the biggest ones. If you look at people it's it i think most people would be very very surprised at the type of information you get in your digital media metrics <laughs> like if you know what countries what ages uh where people work what their jobs are like um that you get you know using the correct analytics platform so um yes the podcast has been doing really 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 well um so what have you been up to man let's uh so let's do, let's do a, let's do 120 seconds of fellowship yeah while i drink my protein shake just got back uh this weekend actually from uh from the midwest and uh we had a successful uh dtma week on site and um what was your big takeaway that was a, your first time being on site for a digital transformation maturity assessment this was in the this was in it, the was, it was worth it it was worth this it was agriculture and- Agriculture. Yeah. I mean, they they paid a, a premium to have us all be out there. I mean, it's flying and everything, especially compared to remotely, it's a lot more expensive. But it was worth it. I mean, this is like their their enterprise strategy. I mean, actually, technically, I was talking with Cheryl. You could probably figure out who this company is because we posted on your LinkedIn, and the CEO executive went and commented on your LinkedIn post saying, you know, hey, great to get started, Alan, Zach, Travis, like tagged his company we're ready to get started on our digital transformation journey so like it's technically out there public information even though we do have like ndas and stuff can't talk about their digital strategy but you know you could figure out who we are working for you know we i mean if you just threw a dart at the wall of like list of fortune 500 companies you'd probably land on a company that we work with but yeah um you know we're, we're wanting to get more case studies we're wanting to get like on site more so i think my takeaway was being on site was definitely worth it for um a dtma like at an enterprise strategy level you know what was your big takeaway so when you you know because this is the first time you've been on site for dtma what was the because you've sat in on dtmas that we've done the problems that they're they're facing are all the same the, the problems that they're facing are all the same you know having to go to three, four, five different systems to get information. Um, in this particular client, their customer service representatives, I'm, I'm surprised that these ladies haven't quit, to be honest. You know, I'm like, like, are you sure you're going to be here for another 18 months? Like, do you have 18 months left in you? Because we're going to need you gals and guys and gals to be part of this initiative because you're the only ones who know how anything works around here. Right. Like, Level they, of they don't really time. manufacture stuff. They sort of do kind of <clears throat> contract manufacturing. So they're working with international shipping, vendors in China, you know, customer service. Like they're the front line. They're making sure like, hey, did this get ordered? Hey, you need a replacement part. What part was that even? You know, like 
it's they're 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 really a mess right now but it all ties back down to that same problem which is not having a single source of truth for all data information one single sort one single pane of glass for engineering uh, sales marketing customer service all to interface through that would solve literally all their problems so it was just interesting to be able to see in this unique case and, and learn the intricacies of this particular business and how we're going to tackle those problems and what are the risks and what is the right architecture and and one of the other things is like this particular DTMA team, I mean, they are stacked. Like this is one of the nastiest DT digital transfer yeah, teams I've ever seen. It's funny you so say well that. Rounded. Like they've got a background from like this uh, sales and one guy did an ERP implementation. So he's like the in-house ERP guru. And then they've got a great leader who identified even a Gen Z talent who she was literally actively looking for another job identified her as a talent, brought her onto the DT team, and now she's going to be able to affect change in the organization rather than quitting. Yeah, it's funny. I wasn't part of the, we weren't even going to talk about this in, in this Q&A, and I'm going to go over what our agenda is for today, but this is actually a really good subject. So I think we'll stick with it here for a couple more minutes. But let, let, me, let me say, that I had the debrief with, uh, so real quick, uh, background, um, we, we just completed, well, they're actually completing it this week. But last week, uh, we had a team of three people on site doing a digital transformation maturity assessment in the Midwest with an agricultural company. Um, and I had, I wasn't part of it at all other than a very initial discussion. Um, Alan Ramsey is the one who led the whole engagement, did a phenomenal job. Um, and I had the debrief last night. So uh, it was basically, they were just going through what they learned and, some key elements. And one of the things that really stood out, Alan actually sent me an email, or I think, I don't remember if he wrote it in, in IM or emailed, but he basically said, we, we like to use the term. We try to quantify whether or not an organization has the spring loaded for digital transformation. So what does that mean? This is probably a, a really important nugget of knowledge. When you're first engaging with a, with a organization, one of the things you want to ascertain in that initial, in the early phases of digital transformation when you're is you're you're quantifying the business you're analyzing the business right and when you do that what you're trying to ascertain is is the spring loaded like are they prepared to ready to just take off like a rocket on this journey and there's some you know and if you guys are in mastermind or mentorship you you see sort of our baseline pillars on how we quantify whether or not an organization the spring is loaded we don't use that term a lot publicly but internally, we use that term all the time. And Alan sent me the message saying the spring is loaded here. And so when we were in the debrief yesterday, I asked him the question, you know, why is the spring loaded? And he it starts with the top. OK, so the chief executive officer there is a no nonsense guy. You know, he's a transformative, disruptive leader, period. OK, uh, to the point where it's, you know, you're this is going to happen. You're going to be part of the solution or you won't be here. That's not normal. Okay. And it, you don't, you don't have to work. Most CEOs are, are vapid Manchurian candidates. They are there. There's no personality whatsoever. They're never disruptive to their people. They want it. You know, they're, they're just nothing but a talking head. The, the vast majority of CEOs that I, I deal with, um, that this organization has a transformative, disruptive leader in charge. Um, number kinda, two, kind of reminds me of you, actually, a little bit. <laughs> oh, thank you. But uh, <laughs> the other thing that stood out when Alan was kind of listing everything off is 
this digital transformation team that they've put together, that he's put together, is is one of the best we've come across without our intervention. So part of our expertise is helping build these teams. And one of the members on that team is in our mastermind already. So I, I suspect, I haven't asked him, but I suspect he has played a huge role in putting this team together, like taking what he's learned in mastermind and consulting with the CEO to help put this team together. But Alan said, you know, these guys have a, a phenomenal um, digital transformation team. And so to the point where I'm not part of this engagement, but I asked Alan, I said, you know, I'd like for you to set up a meeting so that I can meet with this digital transformation team, because a huge part of what we do is we help build that team. But with this client specifically, we're not going to have to do that. That team's already in place. And um, and let me just say this. We do this so much. We do these and these DTMAs so much that when you come across an organization, we have another one that's also in the Midwest based in, in Illinois, where they had, you know, it was obvious when we went when we went on site, it was obvious who the transformative leaders were and who the people should be on this team. That doesn't happen a lot. I mean, it really doesn't happen a lot where the spring is loaded. They've got the transformative, disruptive leadership. They've got the complete team. And I'm going to go over a use case today that was from 2016 where and you, and I'm going to I'm going to talk about what we achieved in just one year with this client. OK. And and it's the difference between what you can achieve with a client where the spring is loaded and what you achieve with a client where you have to first load the spring. So if you have to load the spring, that means you have to win people over early on in this initiative. But if, if the organization is already won over, and when I mean won over, I mean there are nine transformative leaders for every one caveman, right? That's spring loaded. What you can achieve in just a short amount of time is mind-boggling, okay? Um, any uh, any questions in the chat real quick I'm, before I go through the agenda? Yeah, we're my, my question is, I don't really, all the meetings went really well too. Like not a single one was really difficult. That's because uh, the spring's loaded. Yeah. You're not, you're not having to convince anyone. Even right? the executive one, I was kind of nervous for a little bit, but it went really well. Like all of, there was great engagement. Like all of them had great answers, you know, and, and by the end of the process, they're like, wow, even the DT team was like, just going through this process alone. We learned so much about our organization, just going through this. Like I've written so many things down, so many things we want to fix. Like, um, you know, it's, it's a great exercise and it's helpful to have a consultant to be there to lead it. Right. Cause you, you know, I, I recommend going through this on your own if you can do that, but having the consultant there is also a key. That's good. And uh, for those of you who are, who are not watching live. So if you're watching this later, or you're listening to it just over the podcast, Zach is actually on the road this week. He's in yeah. Phoenix, so he doesn't have his mic set up or anything. So his audio should sound a little different. There's nothing wrong with your, uh, your podcast app or anything. So agenda for today, a couple of things we're going to go over. So just some 4.0 solutions, news and updates for those of you who are in the uh, mastermind accelerator. So if you guys are going through that 12 week accelerator program, uh, step nine is tomorrow. So the, the ninth week is tomorrow. Um, and you guys should have gone through the introduction to digital supply chain. We're going to be doing module nine tomorrow. Zach will be leading that session. Um, this is a really, really important topic. So this is the 
this is if you remember how digital transformation happens for organizations happens in two huge steps. Step one, right, is really becoming a smart business. Step two, it, the big second big step is plugging into a digital supply chain, getting connected to other smart businesses. The, the session tomorrow that Zach's going to go through is all about the introduction to the digital supply chain. That is a there's a lot of content there for him to get through. OK, um, we got a couple of general topics that we're going to go over um, and then we're going to get into our use case um, where we're going to we're going to talk about a use case from 2016, 2017 um, with a discrete um, additive manufacturer um, and what was achieved and how much it costs to achieve it. I think is going to blow some people's minds. Go ahead, Zach. Yeah, we did get one question that came in from Sanjiv. You want to hit it now or? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. It's uh, so Sanjiv said data from disparate systems. When you bring them together via unified namespace, the persistence of this unified data, would you do that in a relational system for modeling for consumption and visualization? That depends on the mechanisms through which the consumer nodes consume data. So persistence can be achieved and is achieved in MQTT through uh, quality of service and retention flags. So if I'm using MQTT, for example, we're not using AMQP, which also they do have QoS and retain flags. Uh, actually, any broker technology is going to use quality of service. That is, when when a client is publishing something into the, into the ecosystem. So if I'm a PLC and I'm going to publish a tag update into an MQTT topic, I, I'm going to define my quality of service as either zero. I'm either I'm not going to define it, or I'm going to define it as zero, one, or two. And whether I define it as zero, one, or two is going to say how important that message is that it gets to the people who might subscribe to it. So it's how many times you would notify a consumer, uh, someone who's subscribed to that information. How many times? You know, is it just one time, or at least one time? You're going to keep trying to notify them, and then retention is a flag the MQTT client sends to the broker to say, keep the retain this um, in the broker. So let's say I've got a, I've got a topic that is um, IntelliC integration, Dallas, Texas, temperature, okay, 87 degrees right now. When I publish that temperature 87 degrees right now, I can put my retention flag high. If I put the retention flag high, it means that anyone who subscribes to temperature at later after the message was sent is going to get the last value. That's what retention means. If I don't retain it, then the person who subscribes to temperature is not going to get it until the next change happens. Okay. So number one, to answer Sanjeev's question, it, it is a function of how the consumer is going to consume the data. If you consume directly from the broker and I'm not looking for any um, historical, that is, I'm looking for time series, which I have to get from a historical node, or I have to publish back in a data set into the namespace, then for the most part, you're not going to have to store, you're not going to have to do retention in a relational database. However, there are some use cases where an architect may come to the conclusion, for this specific use case, we're going to want to do retention um in a transaction group or something like that. Um, good question. Really good question. Um, Jeff Rankinen, the class is connecting their ignition installs to a Hive MQ MQTT broker today. Awesome job, Jeff. Hey, are you guys using um, Ignition Maker Edition or did you guys download uh, the, the, the regular Ignition installation? 
um, when you get a chance if you want to answer that. Um, a couple of updates before we get to, into the use case. So um, if you guys haven't had a chance to watch, um, there's a video that we did in the Industry 4.0 Talks. Uh, I think it's number four. Zach, is that right? Is it Industry uh, 4.0? We've only published up to number three, and the okay. most recent one was it starts with digital strategy. Uh, uh right. So it starts with a digital strategy. If you haven't watched that video, that's that's a good one to watch. It's also a good video to I get a lot of questions about. Hey, do you have any content I can share with my boss or I can share with executive leadership? That would be a good video. We have a new one that's coming out that it's not going to be public. It's going to go. It's going to be for the mastermind group, and it's going to be a, a, a resource for the um, under the leadership session. So when we did leadership, which I think was uh, that's module eight in mastermind, we, I, I shot a video a couple of weeks ago that was what is our biggest regret? So what project was our biggest regret, and um, and what was the lesson we learned from that? One of the things I, I've talked about is we really haven't had many fails. <laughs> um, you know, when you look at the total number of, you know, we have thousands of um, thousands of inquiries. We have 230 something active accounts, right? And thousands of projects from those active accounts. We really only have three or four. We have we've only fired a client three times and we've only had one project we regretted. And I actually shot a video about that project. Um and you know how we handled it. How did we know that we probably shouldn't have done it to begin with? And why didn't we listen to our gut? And you know, so that that'll be a valuable um, video, I think, for the mastermind folks. So that's that is going out only to mastermind. Uh, I think Cheryl, Cheryl's gonna Cheryl will make the final decision. So if you guys want, to I was you, wanting I was wanting guys... to publish it for everyone, and Cheryl's like, nah, that's too valuable. That needs to be for mastermind. So I don't think she meant it. I don't think she meant it as value. What she meant is, is that the appropriate place to message it is in that specific leadership training. I think so she's too, saying yeah. she's saying that the people who are going to benefit the most from that content are the people who go through that leadership module. That's what she's saying. And right. add it as add okay, that yeah. video as a as sort of a, a value add to that leadership module. But well, uh, welcome, anyway, welcome, Josh. Good to see you here, man. Um, Joshua. Thanks, Josh. Daniel. Welcome. Um Mark Jackson, how do you win over and get older generation and senior management to buy into invest in a UNS industry 4.0 ready solution? Um, good question, Mark Jackson. Um, the answer is you don't try to win them over with words. Okay. So one of the things we talk about in, actually, we talked about this in the leadership session, the uh, accelerator last week. Don't, you know, don't fight the theoretical um, battles win the results war. Okay. So generally what you want to identify is the three types of people in an organization. There are many more, but there are three key ones you want to identify. So number one, you want to identify the caveman. So that's the citizen against virtually everything or cave person, cave person, no caveman. So, um, caveman or cave woman, um, or cave non-binary, <laughs> So the, the citizen against virtually everything, okay? That is the person who always comes up with the 10 reasons why something's going to fail, okay? It's the 10, you know, they're, you know, you want to identify that personality. You stay away from them altogether in the beginning. You don't have anything to do with them. 
You don't have them part of your digital transformation initiative. You don't try to convince them of anything. The only thing you want to get from the cave person, cave man, cave woman, is a list of their problems. So you want to ask them for a problem they've been trying to solve for a week, a month, a year, whatever. Um, and then you want to solve it using digital transformation. Okay. Number two, you're looking for the person who's paralysis by analysis. That is the person in the middle, right? That is the person who's going to go, go one way or the other as long as someone pulls them. Okay. And that's the vast majority of the people in your organization. That's going to be 60% of the people. And then what you're looking for then is the transformative and disruptive leaders. So what you do is you build a team out of the transformative and disruptive leaders. You solve the problems the cavemen give you and you win over the people in the middle. Okay. You don't, you don't try to fight theoretical battles. Okay. You don't, you, what you do is you win results wars. And so the best way in an organization where the spring is not loaded, what I talked about earlier, in an organization where the spring is not loaded, all you really need is sponsorship and enablement from non-believers, and then you win them over with your results. Great question. Um, <clears throat> uh, since the topic today is use cases, do you have a use case for a conventional power plant? Have you used IEC 61850 common in power sector? Yes. Dennis, uh, let me... They use a see. lot of DNP3, right? Yeah, that's one of the reasons DNP3 was created was for um, highly regulated power industry. Um, thanks, Mark. Appreciate you, man. Um, Dennis, let me see if I can't add um, that to one of our five use cases. I've already picked out the five use cases, but maybe I can swap out one of the last ones um, for that use case. Um, all right. If you guys have any more questions, uh, Michael Dowdell, exactly right. Proof of concepts and pilots are the best way to convince using the same approach, right? Do your POC, do your pilots with true believers and then target the problems of the caveman and then win over the people in the middle. <clears throat> um, general topics I want to go over. So interesting thing, uh, we've been talking more and more about building automation and and this um, this TV show reached out to us, um, a national TV show. It's actually shown internationally. It's shown on um you know, on a major network here in the United States and then is shown on a major network in Europe as well. And um, they reached out to like, hey, we want to come to Dallas and interview you for this show. And so we had the meeting with their executive producer last week um, to decide whether or not this is something we're interested in and whether or not I'm right for them to interview. And um, the, the EP and I, he was asking me some questions about technology and he he wanted to understand kind of what do we do? And when I told him we focused really on industry, he asked, can, you know, can you explain to me how, where the convergence of industry and the com commercial and residential um, come together? And I said, well, that's a really great question. So let's talk, let's focus on commercial building automation specifically. I get this question a lot. Like, you know, right now, if you're an engineering firm or you are, um, if you're a service provider for um, for engineering services or automation services, you're going to specialize in really one or two one of two areas. You're going to specialize in industry, or you're going to specialize in commercial building automation. Commercial building automation is going to be things like security, elevators, HVAC, right? Um, but industry is going to be essentially anything that that organization comes up with 
to turn raw materials or whip into finished goods that they sell to somebody in the supply chain. What I told them about how commercial building is going to change with Industry 4.0, it's really this. I'm an engineering firm, okay? And I, I, we provide cloud-based services to our clients. In fact, I have a, we have a big server rack over here. We use some cloud-based stuff through AWS and Vulture. And then we have our own physical bare metal over here um, in, on the other side of the studio. Right now, I have no access to uh, any climate information for my entire building or external climate information. That is relative humidity outside, current temperature outside. If and, and I have to put the sensors in, myself and Matt and Michael and the other guys who work here and, and guys and gals who work here, we have to put in the, the telemetry we need in order to understand the environment of the building so that we can accurately control the temperature for our data center in a way that is most efficient in terms of energy consumption. However, if I'm a commercial building, if I'm a commercial builder, I'm a, a real estate developer and I build this building, the industry 4.0 real estate developer provides all that telemetry to their tenants. Okay. Not only do they provide the telemetry, they provide access to those values. Okay. And, and when I told him that, when I told this executive producer that, and I said, you know, the, and the mechanism that that, that that real estate developer is going to use to install those sensors and make them available to all the tenants in the building is the exact same technology and architecture we use in industry. There's no difference between the two. Go ahead, Zach. You're saying for commercial buildings or? Sure, absolutely. Interesting. Hey, turn your, your thing off. That I was listening listening to the podcast last week and i could tell you right now when that goes off it hurts real bad. when you have headphones on it it hurts it pierces your ears my bad, my bad. um uh let's do um I'll, i'm gonna go to josh daniel's question here in a second so anyway you know the the point is is that it was it it was it was striking to me how this executive producer who is an engineer and who deals with engineering and uh, engineering and architectural pro uh, professionals all the time hadn't drawn the line between current technology and potential for the vertical that he that he produces shows for to begin with. Um, number two, um, Elon Musk and Twitter. So I, I'm, I'm going to I'm responding to this because I got a bunch of questions about Elon Musk and Twitter. Um, I find it very interesting that Elon, uh, Elon didn't just do a, Hey, I have fuck you money. And, you know, Twitter has been suppressing speech and this is dangerous. And I'm going to go ahead and use my fuck you money to, you know, essentially do a hostile takeover. That's basically what he's done. Right. And he'll probably continue to do a hostile takeover. I, I, I love what he's hostile, doing. Though? Is it hostile? Yeah, it's literally hostile. It's a call, called a passive hostile takeover, right? It's a he. It's a passive takeover. He just got announced that he's going to be on the board of directors because he's the largest single shareholder now. Um, it was funny. I saw who's the CEO of Twitter. I can't remember the Indian guy who took over for Dorsey, um, Pav Pavran or Pravag. So what he, actually he, happened for he, anyone who doesn't know? Yeah. So what happened was Elon Musk spent three billion dollars and he bought nine point two percent of Twitter. Um, why, why would he do that? Well, because what's been happening is, is, um, 
you know, Twitter has been suppressing speech. We would talk about this all the time. Um, you know, I'm a transparency is one of our core values. And I was, we were talking to our team about this. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, the, the Elon Musk Twitter thing is, is a, is a function, is a, is an illustration of his transformative and disruptive leadership. That's what this is. Okay. As it, as an organization, transparency is one of our core values. And a couple of my engineers brought this up in our, in, in Microsoft teams last night and was saying, Hey, what do you, you know, what do you guys think of this? And I, I said, you know, this is Elon Musk enforcing, he, he's basically spending his money on a company who is essentially the town square. It's basically the digital town square. It's where human beings, um, share information and ideas. And he's using his money because he disagrees with the way that Twitter is handling the free exchange of ideas on, um, is on their Twitter platform. Denying, is Twitter still trying to deny that that's what they do or is it? Oh, hundred percent. In fact, the current CEO said only the smart people, the smart people should decide what's like Babylon B got pulled from Twitter and right, also right. Uh, Charlie the, Kirk. Yeah. The, 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 the current CEO of Twitter has said, listen, the smart people are the only ones who should have a voice. That's his opinion. His position is everyone that, should have a voice. That's no, 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 no. That is not their position. That is not his position. His position is not that all people should have a voice. His position is only the smart people should have the voice and that we and the elites should take care of. Right. That's his position. So and I don't want to get into a political thing. I don't care about that part of it. What I care about is this is the illustration of transformative and disruptive leadership. Right. And, and, and that's an extension of values. Obviously, Elon Musk cares about the free exchange of ideas. Okay. He, that's important to him. And because, and, and I, it's also important to me. And so one of the things that I told my team, if you look, there's no more successful integrator on the planet than us. That what we've, what we've achieved in seven years, what IntelliC integration has achieved in seven years has never been achieved before in systems integration history. Like I tell you, I promise there's no, you will not be able to show an example of another systems integrator who in seven years has achieved what we've achieved. Now, how did we do that? I mean, do we just, do we have all the smartest people? Okay. No, what we did was we created a team of like-minded individuals who are more than the sum of their parts. It's the same thing he did at Tesla. It's the same thing Elon Musk did at Tesla. Okay. What he did was he, he, insists on the free exchange ideas and so his move here with twitter is all about enforcing the free exchange of ideas in the town square okay that's all it is i got it we we had this whole conversation within our organization about this our whole engineers brought it up and what i said is this this is why transparency is so important so when you're dealing with your clients why it's important to be transparent with your clients is because tr the free exchange of ideas being transparent is the only way for the best ideas to win. Okay, the best ideas must win, not the ideas from the people in power. The best ideas from all people must win. And the only way to achieve that is through transparency. Um, and then the last thing before we get into the use case here is I bought a Hyundai this past weekend for my son. So I, I have a son who turned 18 and uh, he's getting ready to graduate from college here next month. So obviously... Like any good dad, I'm going to buy him a car. And uh, he, um, you know, looked at all the cars that he wanted. And um, 
you know, I mean, I was willing to buy him like a Mercedes or a Tesla or whatever, but you know, like, like a pompous asshole, I was going to do that. But the, he didn't want that. My son, my son didn't want that. He, he wanted something way, you know, way more. He wanted what he wanted. So he starts looking at vehicles. And one of the things that popped up was the Hyundai Santa Cruz, which is Hyundai's first foray into the pickup truck market. And it, and they released it this year and it's gotten, you know, it's number one safety rating and all these awesome things. So we go to Hyundai to, uh, to take a look at this. And I want to talk about how Tesla in the way that they've approached, you know, that going to market has transformed other car manufacturers. So number one, the last time I bought, bought a brand new car at a car dealer, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but it takes, you spend the whole day at the dealer. I mean, so you're going to get there first thing in the morning and you're going to spend six, seven hours, especially if you're trading a vehicle in or something, you're going to, you're going to spend the whole day at the dealer. One of the things that stood out to me was, uh, there were really three things that stood out. Number one, from the moment we said that we wanted to buy this truck. So he bought a 2022 Hyundai Santa Cruz, you know, black on black pickup truck. You can Google what we, what it is he bought from the moment we decided we wanted to buy that truck to when we drove off the lot was exactly one hour. So from the second we said, we'll take it to when he pulled out of the lot was exactly one hour from the time we got to the dealer and left. It was two hours. It took us two hours to do test drives on two different vehicles. Um, that's never happened for me in my life at, at a car dealer. And when I asked Hyundai, when I asked them, Hey man, this experience was totally different. Like, why is this so fast? He said, because we're feeling a, a, a significant amount of pressure from the car manufacturers. He didn't say Tesla, but he said from the car manufacturers who don't use the car dealership distribution model, we're feeling a huge amount of pressure because now you can buy a car online and have it delivered to your house as opposed to having to go and go through this manual process. So we were compelled to speed up that process. Um, oh, he says, uh, Matt oh, Harris says my audio just, um, dude, the Hyundai Santa Cruz looks sick, dude. <laughs> it looks, I looked it up. It looks pretty sick. Number two is, yeah. is the, um, number two is the blue link. So I, Hyundai has a, uh, has a fully integrated digital ecosystem with their vehicles called blue link. It's very similar to the Tesla app. And before we left the dealer, it was fully integrated. So it was the, the sales guy is the one who set everything up. It was on Jared's phone. And as he's leaving, you know, he's, he's fully connected to his car. But what blew me away was this. Hyundai literally copied Tesla's app. Okay. So what Tesla had, if those of you who are Tesla owners, if you look at the app, you, there's nothing you can't do from the Tesla app. I can change the climate. I, I can use my phone to start my car. That is, I don't need the key. I can just, as long as my phone is in the car, I can just take off and drive. <laughs> um, you know, I can, I can look at all the cameras. I can make a, I can start the car. I can vent the car. I can schedule service. I can do anything. Hyundai d has done the exact same thing with Blue Link. The exact same thing. In fact, there are only a couple of features that are in the Tesla app that aren't in the Blue Link app, which, and when I, again, when I asked Hyundai this, I said, why? They said, listen, you know, we, we, we followed the model of the other manufacturers. 
Here was the last thing that I thought was amazing. Okay, here was the last thing I thought was amazing. They've changed their the they have Hyundai has digitally integrated or has digitally transformed their business so that now the salespeople have a accurate picture of their supply chain. They know not they're not just selling vehicles they have on the lot, but they have they're selling vehicles that are coming to the lot and when they are going to be there, which is fundamentally changed. So when now what they have are they have salespeople who are selling vehicles that aren't there but are in route. So what's happening is they're going through that entire process and then someone's just coming and picking up the car and driving off the lot, which really blew my mind. Okay. It, and, and all of that's happened in the last three years in the three year window. All right. Any questions pop up here? <clears throat> there was a question from. Mark Jackson asked, how would you define the characteristics and background of the right-minded person for intelligent integration okay. or 4.0 solutions? This is a this is a good question, Mark. And and I'm gonna last um, Taylor Turner, who's one of our members of the um, mastermind. Last week when we were doing the accelerator program, we were doing the accelerator session for leadership. Uh, one of the, we were talking about building teams. One of the things I really focused on was how do you build your team, your digital transformation team. Now for a guy like Taylor, that's and the team at the integrator and for somebody else who works for the end user, it might be, how do you build the team inside my plant? And so what I did, this is a really good question, um, Mark. So I'm going to give three pieces of advice when you're interviewing people, when you're talking to people or you're going to be interviewing. Okay. Um, here are some questions that I ask, um, to try and determine whether someone is right for us. Okay. So it all starts with values and mission. So our values are transparency, authenticity, expertise, humility, and servant leadership. Okay. If, if I talk about our core values and I tell a person who's interviewing, listen, this is how we operate. Like every time there's a conflict dilemma, we go right back to the values and say, what do our values say we're supposed to do here? Not what do our feelings say we should do, or what does our fear say we should do, but what do our values say we're supposed to do here? If those values don't resonate, we have we have to, you know, we're not right for each other. Then we talk about mission. Our mission is to help save and create middle-class jobs, okay, in the United States, specifically for us. And that is our overarching mission right now. And I'll show them our strategic vision. I have three organizations. I got 4.0 Solutions. I got Intellic Integration. I have the Bonnie Mae Austin Foundation. And I talk about the mission statements for all three of those groups that you're going to hear about all the time when, when you work here, does that mission resonate? And if it does, then we have a further conversation. <clears throat> we care a lot less about skill set and a lot more about aptitude and attitude. So how do we determine aptitude and attitude? And it's this. I will ask candidates, I want you to tell me about a time you snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. And then they're going to go, what do you mean? And I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to stare at him. You know, tell me a time you snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And however they interpret that, okay, however they interpret that. And, you know, I, I told this story. Our director of operations is a guy named Matt Olson. Um, we are the first place Matt's ever worked. Okay, Matt went, Matt has a degree in economics, and then he got a degree in mechanical engineering, 
We're the first engineering firm he's ever worked at. He's been here four years and he runs all of operations now. Okay. So in four years, and he sits on the board of directors. So in four years out of college, he is the director of operations and he sits on board of directors. He's, he's got a, a one quarter vote or one fifth vote on all decisions in the organization. Okay. How did I hire him? Well, I asked him the question, tell me about a time you snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And he said, he thought about it, thought about it. And he told a story about how his, I can't remember if it was his mom was sick or his dad was sick, but one of his parents were sick in Washington. He was like in Utah somewhere, I think. Can't remember. He was, he wasn't in Washington. Uh, one of the parents was needed to leave, needed to fly out of country. So he needed to go to Washington to help take care of the other parent while they were had the flu or something he had a piece of shit car he drives halfway it breaks down on friday afternoon and you know he cracked a cylinder in the head now this is he's not a mechanic he's not he's never worked on cars before he fucking googles what is he supposed to do he calls a a machine shop he says hey do you have a lathe i can borrow he drives to the machine shop he grabs a TIG welder and he welds the cylinder and then he bores out the cylinder, puts the head back on and finishes the drive to Washington. And I said, I want that guy on my team. <laughs> I don't care if he knows how to write Python. I don't care if he knows SQL. I don't care any of his skill set. <laughs> I care that he shares my values. He understands our mission and he can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat like that. Okay, it helped that he had a degree in economics and a degree in mechanical engineering, so I knew he could jump through those hoops. But to answer your question, a, a proven track record of being able to solve problems. Here's another way of filtering. Here's another really good way. How do you know you're getting the A player? It's the same thing I said last week. What you do is you ask the person, what do you do? What is your, what's, what is your routine when you solve the impossible problem? So what do you, what's your routine when you solve the unsolvable? The only person who's going to know what you're, ask, you're asking is the person who solves impossible problems. My routine is I stand up, clap my, my hands really loud, and I do the moonwalk, okay? And I will do like breakdance, and I do this kind of thing. So when I jump a hoop... When I jump a hurdle that I know no one's ever jumped before or very few people jump it, I've been grinding on something for six hours, eight hours, 50 hours, and I finally debug it. I finally solve the problem. My routine is the moonwalk. If you ask that question to any A player, they are all going to have a routine. So ask that question. What is it you do when you solve the impossible problem? What do you do? And that's how you filter out because the, the person who doesn't solve the impossible problem, they're not even going to know what you're asking them. <laughs> they're, they're, they won't, they're not even going to know how to answer the question. Okay. Great. That was a great, uh, great question, Mark. Um, yes. That, and great question uh, point, Cheryl, Mark, there's a we're hiring video in the 4.0 solutions YouTube channel where I literally did a whiteboard video on what we're looking for. Okay. And, and you know, how we, you know, how do we decide to bring people on board? It's a really good video. Yeah. Believe um, it or not, though, that that values thing that you're talking about and, and the, the mission, like, why is it that we're I can't tell you how many times I'm on a call with, a, you know, someone interested in what we do. And 
they're like, yo, I watched your video with Walker in New York. And like, you know, that resonated with me, like saving and creating middle-class jobs. Like that happens all the time. Like they're like that resonated with me. That's why I wanted to work with you guys. In, in addition to the other stuff, obviously that we do well, but like that is a good indicator is that mission component. Yeah. And let me say this, we're going to go over here by about 10 minutes, but I, I think this is important. <clears throat> um, because I'm, I'm going to talk about something I didn't plan on talking about. <clears throat> Someone had asked me, I, I made a recommendation that our community join a, an event, like join a, an event and, and watch this event. Um, and I, I, got a, I got a bunch of shit for it. I mean, like at least a dozen people after the event messaged me and was like, you know, listen, man, that was nothing but a sales pitch. The whole goal was to just get us to talk to salespeople and shit. And you recommend, I only watched it because you recommended it. And I, I obviously felt really bad about it. And like internally as a team, we were trying to decide like, you know, why was that a problem? And some, someone within the organization asked me the question, you know, why are they, you know, the, the people who were putting this event on, how did they get it wrong? And I said, well, the way they measured success is the problem. Okay. Um, when we talk about values and mission, um, you, if you guys are part of like IOT.university, if, you, if you're part of mentorship or mastermind, one of the things you will notice is at the end of every single one of our sessions, I will ask everyone on the call, was this valuable? Was this a valuable session? And I want the honest answer. Like the information that we gave to you, that we transmitted to you, is it valuable? Can you, are you able to take what we, what we taught and you're able to draw a line between what we taught and what you're going to be able to do with it? Okay. And if the answer is no, then we fucking failed period. That is our measure of success. Okay. That, and, 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 and the integrators we partner with, if you look at GIS solutions, Galleris solutions or Skellig Automation or G5 Consulting or any or, or Michael Dowdell's company, I, I can never pronounce the his <laughs> the company he works for in Mexico. Um, they their measure of success is the same thing. If they're not providing value, it's not it's not successful. Copar. Right. Copar. Thank you. Um, here. There are other people who measure success based on the total number of new people they put in their CRM and total number of proposals they wrote that way. The, the average value of the proposal, the total number of projects they won. How but, many feet is my boat? Right. Those are just those are just opportunities. That's not value. That's not a measurement of success. Success is measured by how much value you've created. And as an organization, we are looking for people who have that attitude. That, that I fail, it doesn't, even if, even if my company made a million dollars on this project, if we didn't provide value to the customer, we failed. There are a lot of people out there who the sale, as long as you get the sale, even if the customer is going to be disappointed a year from now, as long as you get the sale, that was a success. And that's what happened with this other thing that I had recommended. And I, and, and I, I, I in, and I, I'm, I'm sorry I recommended it because, you know, to those of you who are mad at me that I, I recommended this, that you sit through this session. I apologize. Um, <clears throat> I did not expect it to go the way that it expected, that it went. Okay. Um, well, I asked. Yeah. Uh, I, me, I asked why we recommended it. And, you know, cause I'm like, they're not over there recommending maybe us, you know, so. 
I, I recommended it because I believe I believe in the people there. That's why. And I, and I believe that good people who have common values will figure it out. That's what I believe. And I still believe that. I still believe so, that. Yeah, I still believe that. Yep. Me too, yeah. Um, all right. Let me go to IOSEF. Or, uh, hi there. I'm working for a startup, which is building a data platform for system integrators. What would be the biggest challenge the system integrators face when it comes to processing data? Thanks. Uh, normalizing it. <clears throat> so, you, I mean, there's no point in it. You can't, pro if you... If, if you don't normalize data, that is you organize it semantically and you normalize it so that, say, a value that changes once every five minutes is lined up with a value that changes 60 times per second. If you if it's not normalized, you can't process it. OK, getting it normalized is the biggest challenge that people face. It's not connecting to it or collecting it. That's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is semantic hierarchy and normalization. Is that why we like high byte? That's why we love HiByte. We love data operations tools. That's why we love HiByte. That's why we love Ignition as a tool, Factory Studio, because one of the things they all have in common is that you can model the data so that it's normalized. Um, Michael Rada. Michael Rada, spot on, brother. Um, all right, let me let me answer. I'm going to answer a couple of questions and do the use case. So there was a couple of questions that came out um, from last week's session, and I want to make sure I answer them. So Vipool said, uh, wonderful insights, Walker, as always, but just for a broader perspective from consulting point of view, can you illustrate some digital strategy examples instead of the use cases, which normally no one is sure about at the initial stages? Like if we talk about pharmaceutical, for instance, that industry is still stuck into the old age documentation mess and hesitating to move ahead into digital transformation. What would your specific queries be for that? This is a great question because Pharma is an industry we've worked with quite a bit um, over the last few years um, and, you know, worked with companies who have the Pfizer vaccine and were part of the digital initiatives for all that kind of stuff. And, um, and we're working with a big pharma company in, in uh, the Northeast right now. And, you know, let me say this. In all digital strategies, you need to focus on the problem. Okay. So on pharmaceutical, what is the key problem in pharma? Okay, when it, as it relates to why is it we don't digital tra digitally transform? Go ahead, Zach. Bureaucracy. What is the, what is Politi the key problem? Politi politics, right? right? Internal politics. Yep. So how do you overcome internal politics through results? Right. right. So how are we going to provide results? So for those of you who do um, digital transformation for pharma, this should be of no um, this should be no surprise. Their number one problem is for every digital change in the operational network you make, you have to revalidate. Okay. Validation and documentation is a huge piece of the pharmaceutical industry. And no one adds a new connection in on the operational side of the business and pharma because it has to be revalidated. And what does that mean? If I add a sensor and I and I'm going to collect that sensor in an OPC server and then from OPC to the supervisor control and data acquisition, I'm going to consume that data. And from supervisor control and data acquisition, I'm going to put it in a database. And from the database, I'm going to consume into the MES and put it as part of the batch record. It has to be validated at each step and documented. So that is, you have to confirm that the value changes, that the, each hop has been validated. Now, obviously, that becomes a fucking nightmare <laughs> at scale, right? So number one, in pharma, validation is a huge issue. 
And number two, a lack of innovation. So how do we approach the pharma problem? Okay, great question. The architecture that we use jumps the validation hurdle because it only has to be validated to the unified namespace. You don't have to validate it. You don't have to validate it to each node. You only got to validate it one time into the UNS. And then as many consumers as you want can consume it because that data point was validated. That transition was validated. Okay. So instead of having five steps of validation, I've got one. Okay. That's problem number one. Number two, you're free to innovate after that. Okay. Um, the last thing with pharma is batch record. Everything is centered around the batch record in pharmaceutical. What you want to do is make the compilation, the, the storage, and the consumption of the batch record for each batch in a bioreactor as easy as humanly possible. Okay. Um, when the, this conversation came from digital strategy, from the video where we were talking about digital strategy. Okay. Matthew Law asked the question, it seems almost all organizations at this stage would benefit from the same first sentence, have a single source of truth for all information in the organization. This problem comes up so often. To what extent do you think there's a benefit to an organization deviating from this? Great video. Thank you. So let me just go ahead and tell you what most people's organization, what most organizations digital strategy should start with. So what is the digital strategy? It's the overarching vision of the organization for becoming a digital company, a smart company where data is our primary commodity. Okay. It should be a three sentence statement. The first sentence should be the 10,000 foot view. The second sentence should talk a little bit about the technology. The third sentence should be the differentiator. So I'm going to give you guys the first two sentences of basically every digital strategy. Okay. Or what it should be something to this effect. So a good digital strategy statement is this. We use accurate, unified digital data and information to drive decision-making quickly and in real time. We leverage an infrastructure that treats all producers and consumers of data and information as nodes in an ecosystem that interact with one another through a unified namespace. The third sentence is how, how becoming a digital company differentiates you. It's your intellectual property. Okay. Most of the time, what I do is I will give the, the C-suite, the, the executive leadership, this sentence to start with. And it is this one. We use accurate, unified digital data and information to drive decision-making quickly and in real time. The second sentence needs to come from your director of digital transformation and your architect. And the third sentence needs to come from this boardroom. Okay. So anyway, that was a really good question. Um, from Matthew. All right. Any other questions pop through here? Still got to get to before the I get case, to the right? use case. Yeah. Uh, we need data about our machines on our customers' floor. I stuff. I think many misunderstood the value and think only money is equal to value. Good job. Uh, awesome approach for validation. Thanks, Brian. But why is it hard to have them on the customers' floor? Uh, wh why is it hard to get the data on the on the plant floor? IOSF is. So because he asked that question, I know that IOSF is not a integrator um, because there is the answer to your question is you should watch the uh, the IOSF. You should watch one of the very first videos we ever did whiteboard videos. I think I'm wearing a brown turtleneck and it's what is IIoT, I think is the video where I explain how data really only goes in one direction. 
<laughs> and that's the problem with the prevailing thought in industry 4.0. It goes up the stack. It's never meant to come back down. So as you add context going up the stack, most organizations don't have a mechanism to take that context and get it back to the plant floor. This would be things like um, area level OEE or plant level OEE. Um, most of the times a machine is not going to know how it is performing relative to the rest of the other machines assets in the same area. That number could be quite valuable to someone who's writing process control for that piece of equipment if they were visionary in their thinking. Okay. All right. Let's do a use case. Um, <clears throat> takes, it's going to take me about 10 minutes to get through it. Maybe 15. <coughs> All is right. This so this is the Tesla use case. This is not the Tesla use case. So this was in 2016. This was a, um, in, in September of 2015, um, a, ven a vendor reached out to us and, and, um, and said, hey, we have this client who's been using this, this IIoT platform, okay? It's been using this IIoT platform. It's our platform. Um, they've spent millions of dollars, and um, it's not going well. They, and but, but what it really boiled down to is the time to value takes too long. You know, that is each use case that they're doing. It's taking too long. Um, there are too many gaps in the data. So there's too many, there's too much data around the organization that they want to acquire that they can't. Um, and there's no mechanism to take what we've learned in this location, this site, in this area, and have it apply to process improvement of the same area, but in a different site. Okay. So. The, this engagement started with me and another architect who I'm, I'm really good friends with. We flew out to their location and we met with their board of directors and their newly hired director of digital transformation. The newly hired director of digital transformation, and I can't, that wasn't his title, but that's what he actually was. He, he, want, he wanted to, to stay the course, but improve the architecture and the methodology used to develop their solutions. So um, this is a large organization, I think about 10,000 to 15,000 employees. There were four specific sites we were working in, in three countries. Okay. So three countries, uh, five sites, actually, um, about a thousand users were going to be using this digital solution. And it was going to apply to about 500 assets, about a hundred assets per site, give or take. Okay. Um, they had already spent millions of dollars. They had only integrated the solution to one area in one site, and they had spent years, three years or something. Their first mistake was they, when they were ready, they wanted to focus on MES initially. What they wanted to do was they wanted to, they wanted to know where they were to plan. They wanted to know how efficient their operations were, and they wanted to get much better at recipe management in all of their recipes. One of the unique challenges this organization had was that they made lots of custom products. So they had something like 30,000 SKUs in the ERP, and they would make 100 new SKUs every day. So a unique thing was we would have to be able to consume a new, new SKU. We'd have to check for new SKUs at some set interval in this MES layer, and we would have to download the bill of materials and do all of our material definition and management. But because they created so many new products, that was a unique thing about their solution. 
The other thing is, is they had very differing processes. So they made, um, I can't reveal the, the industry. So I, it was additive manufacturing. So that is, as you went from one area to the next, you were taking the thing from one area and adding to it before you got to the finished good. So when we, when we interviewed, when we met with the C-suite, with the, we asked them what they wanted. And they basically said, we want manufacturing execution system with the core four, right? So OEE, downtime tracking, work order management, scheduling. They wanted material management. They wanted quality management. They wanted recipe management and validation. They wanted statistical process control. They wanted historical analysis. And they wanted a single source of truth. They didn't say unified namespace, but they said they wanted a single source of truth for all data in their organization. They needed to be integrated to the ERP system and it needed to be integrated to their lab. So the lab couldn't, the labs in their or in their sites could no longer be separate from operations. Okay. One of the questions I asked the executive leadership was based on this, your satisfaction level with the current solution that this the other integrator has built, um, how likely are that you want, how likely are, is it that you want to just kill this project and start over from scratch? And they all said 80%. So 80, they were eight out of 80% of the way there to just scrapping it. And that was every executive, five of them. So the, me and the other architects said, listen, this is what we'd like to do. If you're willing to allocate $50,000 to a proof of concept in this location here in the United States, there were two locations in the States that we were working with. If you're willing to allocate $50,000 to a proof of concept, okay, um, then we, what we're going to ask you to do is you, we want a process that you've tried to integrate that failed. Okay, so and it was an extrusion molding molding machine that had a custom embedded controller. You need to give us 12 weeks, let us integrate this extrusion molding area. And so they said, okay, we said we'll do it our way. One of the unique things about the extrusion molding line was they used an inline tester, a vision system that tested the parts, the molded parts that came out, but that tester could be moved from molder to molder. So if you've ever done MES systems, it's a nightmare when end of line testing is mobile, right? So that's a that's a unique thing where a cell within the production line could be moved between many production lines. Okay, it's a, it's a hard hurdle to jump. The other big hurdle we were going to have to jump is this: they're con they're making a hundred new parts every day. They're defining a hundred new products, new SKUs every single day. So we did that proof of concept for twelve weeks. They spent about fifty thousand dollars, and we blew them away. One of the big hurdles that we had to do was. How do we handle the mobile inline tester? We decided not to do it through Mac ID. Basically, we looked at the routing table. We could tell which switch it was plugged into. And then we figured out which, which production line that cell was on based on which switch it was plugged into. Okay. Um, there, another way to do that would have been to look at the Mac ID. Wh which Mac ID is in which routing table on which switch. We could have done that as well. But what we did was we looked at the... Um, we looked at the IP address, which was static on that machine. <clears throat> um, after that, they decided, hey, let's... So we did that from September of 15 to December of 2015. And then we did a... a we drew up a big engagement, in which was they were basically going to buy 200 hours of engineering every month, um, you know, for a year. So we spent 13 months. We did 14 iterations. 
we did 4,200 man hours. So basically two, two man years or two man years. Um, they spent a half a million dollars. We integrated in three different countries. Okay. And, and five locations, 500 total assets for a thousand users. Okay. So from also a really important point is when we got about six months in. So in from February, 2016 to September of 2016, we were doing the core capabilities, MES with core four, material management, quality management, recipe management, SPC, historical analysis, UNS, ERP integration and lab integration. We were building all those feature sets. In September is when we started to scale. We went to our second location. We went to our third location. Um, we also needed to find an integrator who was close to their corporate headquarters who would be able to support them boots on the ground. Somebody who, an integrator who was within an hour's drive of their corporate headquarters. Because obviously we were in Dallas. It, we were, you know, it, the fastest we could get there would see, be like, say, eight to 10 hours we managed a flight or whatever. So we needed an integrator who could be boots on the ground. We found an integrator um, and I, I, I found a guy there. I interviewed him. I interviewed the owner of the company and said, hey, listen, I'd like to train you guys to be able to support this client. We want to be able to hand this client off to you in April of next year. Our plan is to only support them for one year and then we'll just be the architect. So starting in September of 2016, about six months before we were ready to do the handoff, we started training this other integrator. That included having that integrator subcontract under us while we did another client's integration so that they could learn our methodology. It was all sort of the baseline for where mastermind and mentorship came from. How do we, we're, we're teaching them how we do these integrations. Um, and, and then from February of 16 to February of 2017, we just basically iterated. Okay. And, and so there were 14 iterations. That's 14 phases of deploying this globally. Okay. Um, and then we hand it off to the other integrator in April of 2017, one year after we, or about 14 months after we engaged with the client. And then in April of 2018, we did a case study. Okay. Um, if you, if you look at the things that we did from October of 2015 to December of 2015, we did engagement and we did the molding proof of concept. That's where we designed the architecture, helped them with their digital strategy, and we saved the project. Okay. From February of 2016 to September of 2016, we codified the strategy. We finalized the architecture. We did the site one use cases. We did site one integration. So that was three areas in site one, which is their corporate headquarters. We did site two, three, and four data collections. So we connected all the equipment in sites two, three, and four and started and, and built out the unified namespace of those sites. We did capabilities design, specifically SPC. We had to jump that hurdle. We had to jump the hurdle of consuming new uh, SKUs from the ERP system. And then we did our SPC testing and ERP integration from February 16 to September 2016. The, the, the second big phase was doing Site 3 PLC upgrades, Site 2 Area 1 integration and MES integration from about August of 2016 to November of 2016. And that was in China. Then from September of 2016 to December of 2016, we were doing Site 2, Area 2, and Site 4 integration and partner training. Site 2 was located in um, Central America. 
And then from December of 2016 to April of 2017, we did continuous integration, continuous development. We supported them. We did the training of the integrator, and then we did the handoff in April of 2017. Now, let me say this. A year later, there was a big case study done and a you know, documentary film done on the whole deal and everything. Um, let, let me, I want to go back and read the actual metrics here again and, and, and kind of point out why is it we never lose to another integrator. There are big integrators out there who bid against bid projects against us and never win. And the reason why is the um, um, and there's no there are very few integrators if you're using the industry 3.0 model that you can do this for the price that we were able to do it for. So we did 13 months of work, two man years, 14 iterations, 4,200 man hours. They spent a half million dollars, five hundred thousand dollars for work in three countries, in five locations, five different plants, 500 total assets, 1,000 users. They spent $500,000. And prior to that, they'd spent almost $3 million. Okay. Um, to this day, they've just continued to iterate and scale. Okay. Continued to iterate, iterate and scale. All right. Any um, further questions before we call it a day on that use case? Uh, Mark, let's start with Mark Ledbetter. In the IoT University videos, you made a quick comment saying something about having network security rules between ERP and the edge was legacy thinking. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, Mark, if what you're doing is um, if what you're doing is using the edge to call directly to the ERP, which is why you would need um, security rules in place, or the other way around, you want ERP to consume data from the edge then you that's legacy thinking the what you can do is use an architecture where you don't violate sarbanes oxley okay so one of the things for those of you who don't know like in publicly traded companies most of the information that needs to be protected as a function of the sarbanes oxley act lives inside the erp system so organizations can't just give unfettered access to the erp because it violates federal law okay there's data in there that you you can't expose to um, people who don't fall under the purview of the SEC. Okay, um, so you have to protect that data. Well, there's a way to protect that data and make it accessible, make the data that's in the ERP that's accessible to consumers without putting message queues and all this kind of shit in between, right? Middleware, and that is using a broker technology for that ERP system to communicate with the edge device. It's the same thing with the edge device. One of the biggest risks with edge devices is if I want to pull, pull a PLC for its data and I, and I want to save money, I want to put my OPC server in a data center somewhere, then it means that I have to open a port so that that OPC server can talk to that PLC. But if you use the right technology, and the reason, part of the reason we use MQTT is because in MQTT, the client instantiates the connection to the broker. The broker doesn't instantiate the connection to the client. So you don't need to open any inbound ports using an MQTT broker, okay? Because the client that's on the plant floor only needs to be able to access out to the broker. The connection is instantiated, and then they communicate through that certified connection, right? We Part of the reason we use MQTT or use broker technology is to, is to jump the compliance hurdle with ERP 
and the security hurdle with edge devices? Great question, though. Sanjiv, if an organization is already centralizing factory floor data across sites in a historian, does it still make sense to propagate data directly from sites into a unified namespace? Yes. You can't. So remember, unified namespace is there's a whole host of reasons that you use a UNS, not the least of which is it, your data is not deterministic. Okay. Um, what an organization wants is a function of what an organization knows. And digital transformation is about exponentially increasing the collective knowledge of an organization. As the organization learns more, they want more. You have to be able to develop solutions um, quickly, okay? If what I'm going to do is just dump data in a historian and then retrieve it uh, use case by use case, okay? That is, I'm going to make a direct connection, for, you know, so I'm going to go uh, data store, API, UI on every single use case. You're never, ever going to catch up. What you have to be able to do is create an architecture or an infrastructure where I can just, I can stack data in the same infrastructure and anything that was already subscribing to the parent node now gets that data. I don't have to do any additional mapping. I don't have to do anything. The subscription's already set up. So in what I mean is this, if I've got a topic namespace that is Intellic Dallas Walker's office, okay? And inside of Walker's office namespace, there's only three measurements, okay? Uh, that those measurements are, is the computer on? What's the temperature? What's the relative humidity? If I set up a subscription to say, I want to subscribe to the data that's in Walker's office, I'm going to get those three things. And if I add, if another client publishes other telemetry data into Walker's office, the next time that data changes, you're going to get that data too, with no integration. It just gets retrieved. Okay? Think about it. Scalability comes from the by from creating self-aware systems. It's right? like uh, if the universe, the simulation was uh, was written in a software program, it would use a broker technology for the for the simulation. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and by the way, the best, the best illustration of this is in mentorship. I think last month or two months ago, we did the self-aware plating line. So I, I showed, you know, a rudimentary self-aware application, a self-aware demo, where if I add, if I add a new sensor, using this technology, the object for that sensor can just show up on the screen without me doing anything, right? Matt Paris is a big fan of self-aware. I know that he's probably done a bunch of use cases on his own on self-aware systems, but in mentorship we do go over this explicitly. So. Great question, though. Um, so what's your favorite feature on the Tesla? Um, favorite feature on the Tesla? I mean, other than raw speed, <laughs> I mean, um, which, uh, by the way, I did, I did, I raced a CBR 750 just a couple days ago on the expressway. Um, yeah, at 75 miles an hour, we did a three, you know, three, two, one countdown and then smashed it. And I just blew him away. He never even got ahead of me at all. I mean, that's, I mean, that's how crazy fast the Model S is. Um, you know, a motorcycle can't beat it. Now, uh, like a 900 or 1100 is going to, you know, with the right torque is going to blow you away. But like a high, you know, there's a couple of them out there that will beat the Model S. But in terms of raw speed, you know, that's probably my, my favorite thing. But um, 
for me, it's like right now I have a software update to download tonight and I already read the release notes on it and there's like four new features in this new release. So, I mean, for me, it's that it's the ecosystem piece. The, the fact that the car is always changing. Yeah. Um, let me make Mark Ritchie asked, uh, uh, could you do a quick recap of the differences between a data model information model and an object model? Yes, Cheryl, you're right. That is a whole other video and a whole can of worms. Uh, Mark real quick, Joe, understand that data model information model and object model are similar to one another but not the same and uh i i will do a, a i'll shoot a completely separate video on that topic i actually think i already have but um all right awesome sorry we went over 15 minutes folks hopefully it was valuable Thanks, um remember for those of you who are in the accelerator program tomorrow is introduction to digital supply chain very valuable session that zach is leading uh, thanks for joining us, and we will see you guys next week. Peace.